Hey everyone, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to cover a couple of quick housekeeping things. First, I wanted to get, give a shout out to everyone who has donated to the Alien Chronicles GoFundMe. We could not continue this podcast without your support. And your enthusiasm for the Alien Chronicles is a great reminder that our show's voices are being heard and appreciated. Second, I hope all of you enjoyed our first blog post where we shared some of our guests' favorite New York City restaurants. Look out for the second blog post about what it means to be an American this week. And now on to the episode. Because I'm a writer, because I live my life paying attention to stories and really wanting to connect to people, I think, you know, one one way to approach these this divisiveness is through, like, having a conversation, talking to people, considering someone else's humanity, um, listening to their stories, realizing how we're very similar. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Alien Chronicles, where each week we share an inspiring immigrant story. We are coming upon the middle of summer now, and hopefully you've been able to spend time with family, friends, and to find some time to relax. This summer, I've been reading a ton, and I am excited to share with you all a new favorite. Today, I'm speaking with Grace Dulucen the author of the memoir, The Body Papers. Grace is a professor at Tufts University in Boston, and The Body Papers is her first book. In 2017, the yet unpublished manuscript of The Body Papers won the 2017 Restless Books Prize for the New Immigrant Writing. It has been incredibly well-received and has been written up by such publications as The New York Times, The Boston Globe, and Nylon Magazine. Grace's story is one about overcoming abuse and trauma and coming to terms with her immigrant and Filipino-American identity. She carefully and intentionally navigates topics that are often set aside into the realm of the unspoken and creates a space where more stories like hers can be shared. Welcome to the podcast, Grace. So good to have you here. Oh, thank you. And thanks so much for that lovely introduction. Really appreciate it. So we'll start with your book. Uh, how did you know that you were ready to write a nonfiction book about your life? And what, if any, concerns did you have, especially unpacking personal details and cultural experiences in this book? I mentioned this in the author's note, which is the first thing that you read from me in the book. And I have been writing fiction for a long time, loosely based autobiographical fiction, and at some point, I started to take on the narrator writing from nonfiction. And I really felt like, especially, I say this in the author's note, especially when my first niece, um, who I call Naomi in the book, is born, this overwhelming feeling of responsibility to the next generation came over me. And I didn't feel like it was important anymore to protect people, the generation before me and the multiple generations before me, by not talking about the difficult things about our lives and pretending to be happy all the time and that we were like good immigrants and just enjoying everything. 
I thought I needed to be honest because there were ways that people didn't warn me or prepare me for life, and that was really detrimental. And so when I held my my newborn niece, she was so little, and I thought, we need to do better, or I need to do better at least, and I need to make a world and be a kind of person that can help her navigate the world. I've since had more nieces and nephews, um, but there's something about the image of her and holding her and just having that feeling overwhelm me that, like, I need to try harder for the next generation. So when you talk about being honest, what does that honesty entail? It means not lying, first of all, right? And trying, of course, there are things that are age-appropriate to talk to about you know, talk to children about. We want to be age-appropriate, but I don't want to lie to my students or my nieces or nephews. I want them to have the information they need so that they're prepared. So for me, I mean, I didn't tell one of the threads or the the pieces of my book is writing about um, childhood sexual abuse. It is something I went through for seven years with my grandfather, and I never straight out actually told my nieces and nephew that this happened to me. They, I think they learned about it from reading about it in the book and having conversations with their parents. It just wasn't appropriate. My oldest niece now is about to be six or ter- just turned 16. And I just, I don't know. I just never, we would, se- we would tell the kids, you know, you want to, we try to encourage bodily autonomy with them and, you know, respect when they would say no about all kinds of things so that they could feel like they could say no to adults. These were all the ways I feel like were, were part of the ways I was trying to, to prepare them. I'm not going to like dump my story on them, but I did want to tell them like, this is your body. You need to, you know, it's okay if you say no, you don't have to hug me, you don't have to kiss me or anybody for that matter when they ask. But now I think they do all know. I'm not sure about the younger ones. I have uh, 12 nieces and nephews. The older ones know because they've read the book. But it means, I think it means preparing them in appropriate ways. And Grace, how difficult was it for you to revisit that trauma? And and how did you overcome that initial challenge of of doing that? Because I'm sure it must have been very difficult for you to do the same, right? Yes. I think there's a way that trauma is portrayed in the movies and even in books that the knowledge of the trauma will destroy you, even if it's the person who experienced the trauma themselves. Like if someone brings it up or if they're reminded of it in some way, they will be, you know, devastated or triggered to a point where they can't control themselves. These are some of the like things, the, the ways that I thought trauma um, appeared in, in our lives. I can tell you as someone who experienced seven years of child molestation almost every night that that it's always with me. Like it's like it is always with me. So whether I write about it or talk about it, in some ways it's a relief because I'm not working so hard to mask and pretend that I'm not someone that this happened to. So, I mean, I don't want to be talking about it all the time. There is something, there was something that happened when I was writing writing the work. I felt pretty raw when I was working on the, the chapters and editing the chapters in the book about that part of my life. I mean, I was feeling particularly sensitive and raw, but it is a fact of my life that is always with me. So it's not, I probably think about it every day. And there's a way that it comes up every day. It doesn't mean that I'm derailed and I have to go home and I'm sobbing every day, but I'm reminded of it every single day. And how do you reconcile with that reminder? I mean, I just have to go on. I mean, I can't, 
you know, it used to be, I'm, and I've done a, a ton of therapy at this point, but I would say when it was at its most painful, like say, I, I think I was in college, um, it had stopped happening to me, I think around like 13 or so, and I was in college, so this is a few years later, and I would sometimes see elderly Asian men on the street, and it would be, I would almost have like a panic attack. So, but then I'd have to go on and go to work or go wherever I was going. And so I'd get like upset for about 15 or 20 minutes and then I'd have to adjust and go back to meeting up with my friends or going to my job or getting on with my day. It's not like that now, I have to say. I mean, if I'm reminded, it's more like the notion of like the cloud going by my perspective. It's like one thing that's that's kind of like going by my consciousness among many. I don't necessarily stop and ponder it for very long, but it's it's there. You know, I've, but I've, I've done, I think, a lot of work so that I could keep going with my life and not be totally derailed or stopped by the remembrance. Absolutely. And talking about your younger and teen years in America, during your childhood, one of the overhanging fears of your life was the fear of being deported. And you talk about this in your book, and you've in fact included a copy of the document from the INS, Immigration and Nationalization Service, that determined that at nine years old, you were eligible for deportation. Again, we see how you talk about your body into that story. And as teens, you and your sister were taken out of school for medical exams and blood tests and fingerprinting and, and, and so much more. So there was like physically you were involved in the process of immigration and many people living in the U.S. don't realize the toll it takes on kids especially. How did the realization that you were undocumented immigrant affect you as a person? I really appreciate your reading and your compassion, like, really comes through in the question. I really appreciate that. I don't think anyone else has picked up on on this. I've done a lot of interviews and I've talked to a lot of people. And I think if you haven't actually gone through the process, you don't understand how involved it is. And it is a physical process. I mean, some of the things that stays with me is seeing my parents. I mean, my father's a physician. My mother worked in his office. They were very respected people. They were owners of their own business. And to see them almost cower in front of immigration workers and other people involved in the process was kind of devastating to see that. You know, they they were scared and they felt they were they had to be like subordinate to somebody else. And and, you know, my, both of my parents are physicians, and we had to undergo a medical exam. We were all together, which is kind of strange. Like, we were teenagers, my parents are adults, and, like, we're all in the same room getting examined together. And I have, like, memories of my—we were all getting shots, or we, we were getting shots or our blood drawn. I don't remember. It was something to do with needles. And my father, he's a physician, but he was really scared. He has, like, a phobia of needles. And so my sister and I, we got our, our, our shots done, and my mother got her shot, and then we had to stop, and then my sister and I, like, had to go out of the room, and my mother had to, like, talk my father through his, his the process of getting blood drawn or something because he was so scared. There was—maybe it's not an opportunity, but moments like that that would have never occurred in regular life, but because of the immigration process— 
we were so vulnerable. Like, and I saw my parents in incredibly vulnerable vulnerable positions. Um, and all of us had to get our, our bodies tested, like TB tests and AIDS tests and um, all these other tests so that we could be found suitable to be in the immigration process. And it's important also to note that immigration process today is very different from immigration process, say, 200 years ago, because people who believe their ancestors came here legally don't realize how immigration process has changed and how much laws around immigration have changed and evolved. Talking about immigration, now, immigrants are expected to assimilate in the countries or host countries and cultures. But in the essay on your family's immigration to America titled Little Bud, you talk about the erasure that comes along with assimilation. What is being erased? And was the erasure encouraged by your parents? In some ways, the erasure was encouraged by my parents. They did what other people of their generation, other immigrants, Filipino immigrants of their generation did, which was there was the belief that they should just encourage English as a language with us. People in other generations, um, younger folks, I know some other younger Filipino immigrants, their parents did not encourage them to stop speaking Tagalog. It was just a different belief at the time. Maybe they all... They talked to each other and there was a consensus or some kind of like information getting passed along with immigrants that they said, let's make sure our kids just speak English. And I can see the reason behind it. Like you see the rhetoric now, people want you to speak English better or whatever it is, right? Is as, as if that's some kind of indicator of how patriotic you are, how much you love the country. So they were doing the best they could. They thought we should know English and speak it without an accent. So they made the decision not to teach us or encourage our native language. My first language was Tagalog. That's what I experienced the world in. My nanny, who was with me almost 24 hours a day, she was a Tagalog speaker. And so that was the language I was immersed in. And there was the decision when we came to the United States that, that I would not be bilingual, but we would be monolingual. And, you know, my parents spoke Tagalog to each other, but there was never... There was never encouragement for me to to learn it or to know what they were saying. In some ways, it's bad because I had this habit of, like, checking out because there would be conversation that the adults would have around us. Relatives would come and visit, and it would all be in Tagalog. So I just would, like, got used to, like, being at a dinner table with lots of people and just kind of checking out and, like, going into my own imagination because I couldn't access the conversation that they were having, which means I lost out on a lot. Like, what was all the, that stuff they were talking about and what might I have learned or gained from having access to those conversations? Um, even if it wasn't for children, I know children like pick up and learn things from conversations they might not necessarily be involved with. You're absolutely right about how this this notion of knowing more languages or assimilating is changing. For me, I really focus on integration rather than just, you know, all of us being the same. And with even with my kids, I know five languages and I'm trying to promote at least one of my ethnic languages in, in our household so that they can speak multiple languages rather than just knowing English. And to be honest, I think it just gives kids better perspective and it develops empathy among kids for other 
cultures as well when when they can speak those languages. Now, talking about your background and you were two when you came to the U.S., but then you go back to Philippines and you live there as an American. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? What was it like and what was the difference between just visiting Philippines and then living there? I think it was after your 42nd birthday, right? Yeah. So what was that experience like? So I've always wanted to go and experience living in the Philippines, and it was like a fantasy land to me. I just thought, that's home, because that's my ancestral home. And during the visits, very, very short visits, just sporadically, maybe every five or ten years, we'd go for like ten days or something. We weren't the kind of family. Some families we knew would send the kids back for the whole summer. And so they very much grew up with this like bicultural identity and, and would practice the language when they would go back to the Philippines for the summer. But for us, it was sporadic visits. And I don't know, I just needed, I felt this need to go back. And of course, there's no back to return to because the place that I left was completely different from the place that I returned to in my 40s. In what ways? Growth. I mean, even the land that we were living on, I lived in a condo in a place called Bonifacio Global City. When I had visited my aunt in the Philippines, maybe five or ten years before that, really not a long time, I had visited her in a house that stood on that same land, and it was like a army house or something, a general's house. And the whole place had completely transformed. I mean, her house, it was a small house and it was dark and there was no lights on at night. And then I returned and it's a city. So like growth, I mean, the growth and development was fast and big and it transformed the landscape. So even that was a different place that I've returned to. And also people like relatives had had died already. So there was people that, no, you know, there are people who are a part of my early life when I was a toddler who were just not there anymore, like my grandparents um, and aunts and uncles. So, you know, it was just a, it was a really incredible experience, some of which is to further make me understand my American identity, actually, maybe even more than my Filipino identity. What did you discover about your American identity when you were in Philippines? That it is full of privilege. I mean, like, my accent, I, I look the way I am, which is I'm, my both of my parents are Filipino, and I, people knew right away, taxi drivers, star, this, people at Starbucks that we saw all the time, restaurants. I mean, I was like a celebrity because I, of my accent. As soon as I opened my mouth, I was read as an American, which of course I am, and that meant something good. That was a position of privilege. So I hadn't experienced that before. And it's, you know, it's an interesting thing to, like, take apart and, like, think about and, you know, the complexity of that. The Americans had colonized the Philippines. Like, you know, there's some com there's complexity. It's not all good. But it was an interesting experience. And I have to say it, w it felt nice. Like, who doesn't want to have people be friendly to you and smile at you and, you know, be curious about you and ask you, what is it like in America? It felt really nice, actually. And then you were trying to speak native language. Tagalog. Well, everybody there speaks English. Oh, yes. It's yeah. very similar to how it is in Pakistan. Yes. Again, another British colony, which was colonized and got independence in 1947. But mm -hmm. you, you're absolutely right about this notion and this privilege that comes with, whether it's the accent or it's your skin color. 
right? And and you talk about how you had this incident where your friend Joanne and you were out and about and you were holding her kid's stroller, I believe, and something happened. Can you share that experience with us? So I was on the Fulbright Fellowship along with my best friend and her family. Her husband had a, a Fulbright Fellowship as well. And we lived across the street from each other, across condos from each other. So we spent, we were with each other every day. And I never even really thought about how her experience as a white American woman would be so different from my experience as a Filipino-American. And yet they were on, in very visceral ways. So I was, um, we, we would go to the gym together every day. And one day I was with my friend Joanne and her son, and I had offered to push her son's stroller because she needed to talk to somebody. And so I did. I was pushing his stroller, and then I found that people were treating me like— I'm used to getting treated like an American, and why are people, like, shoving me out of the way and, like, not saying excuse me and kind of being rude? And then I realized, oh, I'm in my gym clothes pushing her kid's stroller. I'm standing next to a white woman pushing her kid's stroller. Like, people are reading me as the nanny, which is another way of reading me as expendable, unimportant, someone that you don't have to say excuse me to and you can just, like, you know, not treat as quite human or something. And so um, that was also an interesting experience as well. And she had, I write about this in the book, but something that stressed me out a lot was crossing the street. I'm used to crossing it here. I know what the rules are. Even if I go to a different city in the United States, I know, like I walk when there's like the little white, you know, walk sign that goes on and I stop when it's red and all of that. And and in the Philippines, sure, we had walk and go, you know, walk and stop, but I didn't find that people followed the, the traffic rules for me. But then I talked to my friend Joanne about it, and she was surprised. She said, what are you talking about? <laughs> they stopped for me. Um, and then I talked to other people about it because I, I really was kind of bothered. I'm like, why don't why don't they stop for me, but they're stopping for my white friend? Um, and, and I don't know. The answer at the time was that people are afraid of hitting a foreigner, um, and that's why. But they would be okay with hitting me, I guess. So they would take the risk of, like, driving while I'm in the crosswalk and all that. And this is such an interesting conversation because, and I see this in Pakistan as well, this this uh, this colonial hangover that uh, our societies and countries have, where on the one hand, we are just averse to or we completely reject any cultural norms or policy frameworks that mirror Western ideals. But on the other hand, we are just, we have this romanticized version of whiteness and white privilege, which is basically given premium in these societies. So anybody, I mean, if you watch Pakistani television, you will find so many commercials promoting whiteness creams, whitening creams. It's like, it's nonstop. And it's ironic how we've accepted one, but we reject the other. I mean, as much work as I've tried to do to dismantle my internal white supremacy, I I have it still. I feel it. I mean, I have to—it's steeped in so much. I mean, I've learned to privilege whiteness over other people or even myself for I don't even know how long. I mean, I've listened to some of the comments people make in my family. I'm talking about my extended family or other Filipino communities is when a child is born, there are remarks about gender, of course, but there are remarks about the whiteness of the baby. Like, yeah. oh, good— the skin the has you know white white skin or light skin good he's not as dark as his father what like i've listened i mean i'm steeped in it from from early early on as are a lot of the people i'm around so it would 
I think we need to dismantle it, but it, it is we have to work pretty hard to to pay attention to when we're enacting it and enacting these beliefs. And I think somehow we try to like associate it with or conflate it with like social status and privilege. Whiteness is not just skin color anymore. It's what it entails, especially in those cultures. And that's why I'm surprised when people living here are scared to go to Pakistan. And I'm like, no, you should go to Pakistan. You will love it. You will get privileges that probably I wouldn't. <laughs> so, um, but your husband, he moved to Philippines with you and he's not originally from Philippines, right? No, no, no. So what were his experiences? He is a black American. Mm -hmm. He is from Louisville, Kentucky. And he is not white, I mean, he's black, but he still experienced privilege as an American. And But what's interesting, sort of an aside, is he went when he went to Africa for the first time, he was on a photography assignment, he's a photographer, and he was in Kenya, and he was considered white. I mean, he, there's pictures of him in, in the book, but, like, it's interesting, like, what our notions of whiteness mean in different contexts. But he's American, which is the same thing, or maybe perhaps was conflated with whiteness, and he was read as a white American in Kenya. But anyways, in the Philippines, he was read as American, and he, like me, enjoyed some of those privileges, and, and he felt comfortable, and he could relax. And I was glad for him because he's lived in our society, in U.S. society, as a African-American or black man. And I think there are ways, you know, as a woman of color, as a Filipina in this country, there's ways that I've experienced bias and discrimination and prejudice and racism. But I don't even know the half of it in terms of what he's experienced. We've I've been with him over for over 20 years now. And even so, I'm still learning all the time about the pain and hurt he experiences because of his of the way he's read and because of his racial identity. We had an incident in Paris last summer. Um, I was really excited to bring him to Paris because I had spent a great summer there by myself after college. And so we finally had enough money and time, and so I was going to take him to all my places I loved in Paris. And pretty quickly on, like, I realized he's having a very different experience than I am, and it's because of racial identity. There were ways that he was read as... African or Middle Eastern or whatever people don't like because he, he was not treated in a friendly manner and was even called stupid to his face. So it was, you know, pretty ugly, painful experience. And the way that he looked, when he looked around at Paris, we were, you know, there's a Vietnamese restaurant, there's a coffee shop, there's this and that, there's statues. And he said all around him, all he could feel was like the weight of colonialism everywhere. You know, seeing the statues, like, well, you that was taken from another country. So I don't know. There's just ways that it was not enjoyable to him at all. And I realized pe I didn't have that experience. People weren't treating me that way because I was read as Asian. And whether that was Chinese or Japanese or even as an American, it was it was something that wasn't as negative as you know how people what story people were telling about um, my husband's identity. In what ways can we? erase those prejudices and stereotypes or at least mitigate those? Like, what are some of the ways you think can facilitate that process? Because we see it around us all the time. We see it in the U.S. a lot more now. Is, is there any, any solution to it? I mean, probably a lot of other people have thought 
a lot more and better about me in terms of policy changes and what to do with resources and things like that and how to how to on a like a bigger societal level and can speak to that more than I can. I can only speak to some of my experiences, which is one-on-one interactions. And even that, I, I fear I fear that there's limitations, as I wrote about in the book with a longtime friend. You know, we stopped being friends because of racial issues coming between us. So I don't know. I wish that, I mean, because I'm a writer, because I live my life paying attention to stories and really wanting to connect to people, I think, you know, one one way to approach these this divisiveness is through, like, having a conversation, talking to people, considering someone else's humanity, um, listening to their stories, realizing how we're very similar. And, you know, that's one way to, like, kind of build empathy. But I fear that it's not enough to, to really make change, make maybe a little change on, like, the neighbor-to-neighbor level. But even there, I just, I don't know. I hear about people in in families, you know, after the election a couple of years ago, how people in families on different sides of the political spectrum, like, stop speaking to each other, like, even yeah. though they're family. So I'm not sure that just, like, loving each other is going to be enough. It seems like big structural societal changes will have to, ha- you know, have to happen in, in order to promote equality and trying to you know, right the wrongs that were um, made by the inequality. Talking about your book, what kind of responses have you gotten about the book from readers? Well, it's been incredibly positive, and I'm so glad because I was scared before. These are all—all the things I talk about in the book are things that we're not supposed to mention in polite conversation. I mean, it's—it's like I'm talking about cancer and in the family and— you know, trauma and abuse and the depression and anxiety that comes out of experiencing trauma and abuse and my frustration around what not having enough money and whether I was going to have kids or not, like on and on and on, like all these things that when people ask you, how are you doing? Like, you're not really going to get into all this stuff, right? So I was afraid that, first of all, people would abandon me in some way. They would reject me or be like, oh, you think those things or you feel that way? Like, that's so icky or something. And then I just thought, people would be mad at me and and think I got things wrong. And just um, all these ways, no, none of this has happened, but I had all these fears beforehand. And what the real response has been is people being really moved and grateful and appreciative and supportive and wanting to, like, share my book with other people. They've been deeply moved. I feel it and I see it, whether they write me a note or post something online or I you know, run into them in person, like, I can feel they, that they've taken in my story and been moved by it. And have the responses been any different in Philippines versus the U.S.? I don't know. I don't know if the book is available in the Philippines. Oh, it's not? I don't, I mean, it supposedly it is, but I don't know. I think what I have from the Philippines so far seems to be silence. I don't know that if it's available. I don't know if people are interested I don't know. I'm I'm planning to go to the Philippines next year, maybe, if people are interested. So we'll see. But I haven't – I mean, I've had, like, my friends, a couple of friends in the Philippines have read it, um, and they've sent me deeply heartfelt notes. But I just don't know that people outside of my circle in the Philippines has read it. And, and how does your book, Body Papers, fit into the larger immigrant in America narrative? How does it promote that? Well, I think that I grew up on a diet of – 
mostly literature by and about white people in America, right? (laughs) And then finally, when I got like halfway through high school, maybe into college, then I realized that other people, immigrants, women of color, people of color, you know, had written their stories. And so mine is different because it it goes over a lot of it covers a lot of ground so i think it veers away from just being a narrative about immigration and assimilation and you know that's it i think i i tried to take on a lot of other experiences of my life which is part of me being an immigrant because none of that is i can't separate any of that out even i write about having the BRCA mutation and having to make a decision about my body whether i'd have prophylactic um, oophorectomy and mastectomy, which means removing my ovaries and breasts in my 30s. And, you know, I felt completely supported in doing that. There are organizations in the United States in education about it. So, you know, people understand that this is something that that is the standard treatment for having the BRCA mutation. And I went to the Philippines and you know, it wasn't so accepted yet. And a doctor had um, said something. I mean, I write about it in the book, but a doctor had kind of like tissed me and said, like, how could you do that to yourself? How could you mutilate yourself like that? So, you know, that's not something that's fairly new. I'm in the first generation of people in my family to have this question about the genetic mutation. So that's a new thing like that I wouldn't see in other immigrant narratives. So I guess I just tried to expand the immigrant story to include lots of other experience besides assimilation. And do you think w- what you're talking about, especially the doctor's response, is is a function of how cultural norms are set in Philippines and how people approach things there? Um, do you think it has anything to do with that? I just think there probably hasn't been the advocacy and education that happened here around the, the BRCA mutation. I think it is quite rare in the Philippines. I don't think it's that common as a mutation. In the United States, it's still rare, but there's there are places that are trying to raise awareness and say, this is why women are doing this. There's newspaper articles, there's documentaries, there's more awareness. I think, you know, doctors may talk about it in their conferences, but at least this person who I came across must not have heard about it or heard about it but not been educated enough to know that the standard of treatment is this. Like we tried, there's like other things you can do, but the the best thing that we can do at this point with given our medical knowledge is prophylactic surgery. If you want to prevent cancer, like that's what you have to do. So I think, I don't know, the person was ignorant. And it may also be how we define women in general. Yes. Um, because I think women are more than their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that, and and it's the onus of this, this responsibility of what, how to define women. I think, also lies with somehow women. Absolutely. And and that's an important distinction to make about women because I don't think people will be as judgmental, in my opinion, if it were a man taking such a decision. Yes. And the question that the doctor asked me was, what did your husband think about it? As if like that. It was his decision. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, sure, that could be a question. But like, I just met this person. And why is he already asking about my husband? Assuming that and he assumed that I had a husband also. It's just. Yeah. I mean, I'm it's my body. It's like not up to my husband or my father or whatever to make that kind of decision. 
Absolutely. Going back to your book and the narrative around Asian American or immigrant, whose responsibility do you think it is to define those narratives? And how do we make sure that we have diverse voices in, in this, this realm? Because you are a diverse voice. How, how do we ensure that we bring in other diverse voices in literature and in other forms of expression? I think it is through encouragement and support, like encouragement by encouraging people like us to write their stories and support. What you're doing with your podcast is support. It's spreading awareness. It's amplifying people's voices, giving people opportunities to publish, to take classes, to go to writing conferences. I mean, I am curious and interested and excited about whatever someone else is going to write about their immigrant experience because it's going to be different and it it should be different from mine or anybody else's. I want the diversity, heterogeneity, all of it. I want to hear other voices so that we don't just have five or two or a or hundred or whatever, even more than that. Sometimes I feel angry, frankly, at, at like how many of the same kinds of narratives I've heard over and over again. Like, I've heard so many narratives. I mean, addiction narratives are important, but I've just heard so many that sound very similar and come from people with very similar backgrounds. And that's fine. I mean, like, we need to talk about addiction and write about addiction and, you know, take the stigma away from it. But I wonder if we can have that many narratives about, like, addiction from a certain socioeconomic class and all of that, then we should be able to have the diversity of narratives about something so human as immigration and migration. You're also a professor, so let's talk a little bit about that. Um, in terms of your students, have you noticed any change in your students over the course of 17 years that you've been teaching in terms of their approach to these issues? Yeah, I mean, I am starting a new job. Actually, I'll be teaching at Brandeis University starting in the fall, but I've been at Tufts University for over 15 years. Um, I guess it's 17. That's really long. And I have seen a change. I mean, I've seen a change, especially, I mean, we can talk about gender expression and identity. That's a, a change I've really seen in the past couple of years. And students, I feel, and young people have been the ones who've been the leaders on respectfully asking people what their pronouns are or having that be a part of the culture, at least at Tufts and on the other places, other universities I've seen where, where students are introducing themselves in class or in spaces for the first time and including their pronouns. That's huge. Like, And I've seen it spread to the point where it's part of the institution. Like, We fill out information about ourselves or we have on my faculty webpage, like we can put our, our preferred pronouns there. People have put it on their email signatures. And I do feel like that's been student or young person led. And I think that's wonderful to see that kind of openness, compassion that they have around this issue. And what new technologies have you seen change the way students approach school or their class or even issues that we are talking about here? I feel I, I do use the internet a lot, but there are ways and ways that, that my students are using it that I don't participate in at all. They do a lot with video, like YouTube is huge, like that's where their celebrities are, not that's like true. TV. So there's, I know there's things that I just don't access as part of youth culture, but I think it's incredibly powerful and ways that they're 
um, raising consciousness and making change, you know, in probably in more dramatic, radical ways than my generation. I'm in Gen X, and not to put down my generation, but I just feel like this, the generation who's have come after us and who have been, you know, even in more recent years, because of the access to the internet, there's ways they're changing and being more open to diversity, frankly, than than my generation. I see that a lot with my 13-year-old talking about pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, she will correct me. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like I'm I'm learning so much from her, the way she she defines things. And you're absolutely right about YouTube. I and I think that's very specific to Gen Z, I, I believe, especially this this obsession, not obsession, but this like uh, watching YouTube and not having that that kind of affiliation or, you know, wanting to watch TV. I see her on YouTube all the time. All her celebrities are like YouTubers, uh, which is a, a very different um, media approach than what we grew up with. So it's you're absolutely right. It's very interesting to see how that's changing kids everywhere. And and again, technology helps them connect with other people, you know, living in all over the world, which which is a great thing. Grace, I always ask my guests um, this question in the end, and it's I'm always fascinated by their answers because as as an Asian American, as an immigrant, as a professor, you have so many identities, right? How do you define America in a sentence or a word or a phrase? How would you define it? Oh my gosh, I should have prepared. Um, hmm, I'm trying to think of the first word that comes to mind or the what I think about. Okay, I'll. I really do think freedom. I feel it. I know that it. Sometimes when people say America and freedom and patriotism and stuff, they're actually meaning something that's exclusive and they mean only an America that's for some people. But I feel free in the United States in a way that I don't feel in other spaces. When I return from a trip to the Philippines, even just physically, I feel freer. I can walk around. I know how to navigate things. I can drive and I can predictably drive from one place to another and not be mired in six hours of unexpected traffic. I can breathe the air and not have an asthma attack. I mean, there's just ways I physically feel free. And of course, there are other ways that that extends to besides just like environment. I do feel comfortable writing things and and not, you know, I feel like there will be protections if something happens and if I don't feel like the government is forcing me to say or not say something. So I appreciate freedom and that's what I feel. And that is something that to me really does define the United States. And I know people can argue about the extents of that freedom in ways that that freedom is being denied people who are non-citizens or even people who are citizens that that say the wrong thing. But I don't, I don't know that we're there Yet, at least for me, I still think of the word freedom when I think of the United States. And Grace, where can people find your book? It's an amazing book. I've read it. I highly recommend it. Where can they find it? Um, Thank you so much. They can find it everywhere books are sold. I encourage you to go to your favorite indie bookseller. Go in there. If they don't have it, ask them for it and they can order it for you. You can go to my publisher, Restless Books. You can buy directly from them. I also just, uh, my audio book will be released on July 30th, and I narrate it. And so that's also available on Libro FM, um, as well as Audible and, and anywhere, you know, audio books are sold. 
Thank you so much, Grace. This was amazing. Oh, thank you. And thank you to all the listeners. Um, you can find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Chronicles Alien or on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. You can visit our website, alienchroniclespod.com. Until next time, when we bring another inspiring story. In the meantime, stay connected. <laughs>